Our scripture passage today is in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. It's my privilege to be the first one to read from this passage, being an ex-military man, although the nearest I got to a sword was a ceremonial sword. It's fun to read about the armor of God here. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Lord, what Paul requested prayer for for himself, I now pray for myself, that you would cause me to speak boldly even as I seek to speak humbly. But let me be faithful to your word, Lord, no matter what. Let me not shrink back in fear. Let me not shrink back in doubt. But let me just trust your words and speak as boldly and honestly as I can. And I pray in Jesus' name that the first effect of this word would be that it would change me. That I would be a different man and a better man of God and a more well-outfitted warrior of God in this battle that we're in. And I pray then for the whole church that right now as we enter into a three-month boot camp, as it were, I pray in Jesus' name that you would make us mighty men and mighty women of God and mighty children of God. May we rise up trusting not in ourselves, but trusting in the God who raises the dead, trusting in the God who gives the victory always in Jesus Christ, trusting in the God who is more powerful than we can imagine and is therefore more powerful than any enemy we will ever face, whether in the flesh or in the world or in the powers of darkness, whether in health or whether in sickness, no matter what, you have the power to overcome all and to work all things to the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So fill us with faith now, I pray, Jesus, and outfit us for war, I pray, and teach us how to rise up and be mighty men and women of God. In your great name and in your gracious name, we pray all these things. Amen. In my view, the book of Ephesians is governed by two main sentences. Uh, the first is in chapter 1, verse 3, and the second is in chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's an amazing sentence. That is an amazing claim. And so Paul goes on in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians to make his case. He goes on to show us just how God has blessed us in Christ. Namely, 
He says that God chose us in Christ and predestined us for adoption in Christ and lavished His grace upon us in Christ and forgave us our sins in Christ and gave us wisdom and insight in Christ and has taken us as His own inheritance in Christ and has filled us and sealed us with the Holy Spirit in Christ and has made us alive with Christ and has raised us up with Christ and has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places and has prepared good works for us to do in Christ and has made a way for us to be reconciled with the Jews and with all other peoples in Christ for the glory of His name and has made a way for us all, one people, to be reconciled to God in Christ so that in Christ we would be one body, one church, one holy temple, one dwelling place for God Almighty by the Spirit. Indeed, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so blessed be His name. What more could God have done for us than what He has said that He did for us in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. You will not be able to answer that question well. He could have done nothing more for us than what He has done. So indeed, blessed be His name. That's the argument of the first half of Ephesians. The second half of Ephesians is also governed by one sentence. And that's in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, Paul is saying, I urge you to live your lives in such a way that reflects the truth and beauty and glory of what I have been saying in chapters 1, 2, and 3. I urge you to magnify the worth of what God has done for you in Christ through the way that you live your life. I urge you to reverence the fact that God means to make of you a dwelling place for Himself by the choices that you make day in and day out. If all that Paul has said in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is true, and it obviously is true, then we ought to strive with the strength of Christ to display that reality in the way that we live our lives. That's what Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are about. And that's why Paul goes on in chapters 4 and 5 and the first part of 6 to spell out for us and paint for us a picture of what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And now, in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, he's trying to help us see what it actually takes to live in this way. In other words, he's saying, Christian, if you want to live in a manner worthy of your calling, you must rise up and be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You must put on the whole armor of God from head to toe. You must take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you must fight. Christian, you are a warrior. And if you're going to succeed in this life, you must fight in Christ with all of your might. You see, it's just not natural for us to do the things that Paul has called us to do in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Just read those chapters this afternoon. Take them seriously. And tell me, is it natural for you to do what Paul is calling for you to do? It's not. It is not natural for us to be humble and gentle and patient and kind and forgiving. So we must learn to rise up in Christ and fight in Christ. It is not natural for us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're so quick to divide from each other. And so we must 
be in Christ and strong in the strength of the Lord and we must rise up in Him and fight. It's not natural for us to want to be equipped by those who the Lord has appointed so that we will grow up into mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If the truth be told, many of us would just like to wallow in our immaturity. And it's not natural for us to want to stretch and grow. And so we must learn to rise up in Christ and fight the fight of this faith. It is not natural for us to forsake the ways of the world and sensuality and covetousness and greed and all of the things that the world offers. And so we must learn to rise up in Christ and fight with all of our might. It is not natural for us to want to be filled with the Spirit so that we live lives of worship where we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And what I think that means is that your mind and your heart are so filled with glorying in Christ that that's what you speak of when you get a chance to speak. It's not natural for us to do that. It's not natural for us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in our heart to make melody to Him with all of our hearts. It is not natural for us to give thanks to God always and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is not natural for us to live lives where we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we must learn to be in Him, to be strong in His strength, to rise up as believers and fight with all of our might. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that is what Paul is trying to teach us in Ephesians six ten through 20. And therefore, that's what we're going to talk about for the next three months. I'd like for you to envision with me that we are enrolling in God's boot camp for the next 90 days. We're going to be in a boot camp where we learn discipline, where we learn skills, where we learn the practice of the art of spiritual warfare. And my prayer for this boot camp is that God would, in fact, outfit us to be warriors in His army. I've been praying all week, and I will probably be praying for three months that the Lord would raise up every one of you, man, woman, and child, to be a strong man of God, or to be a strong woman of God, or to be a mighty child for the glory of God. He can do this. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would join me in this prayer. And again, that He would in fact raise us up to be warriors in His army. So I want to begin this three-month-long discussion by making a case for envisioning the life of a Christian as a life of war. And for envisioning the Christian himself or herself as a warrior. And the reason that I want to take the time to make this case is because I just don't think it's right to throw things like that out there that have so many implications for our lives without rooting and grounding it in the Word. The Word of God and I am going to call for difficult things from you in the next 30 days, in the next 90 days. And I don't think I should do that lightly. I think I should ground that well in the Word. So let me take a few minutes here today and point you to five texts that display the fact that to be a Christian is to be a warrior in the army of God. And no less than that. The first text is the one right before us. Ephesians six ten through 20 And I just want to ask this question. If Paul doesn't mean for us to outfit ourselves for war and to fight then why else would he use the language of armor and weaponry? Why would he bring that up at all? The only reason that a person outfits himself or herself with the weapons of war is to fight, right? Can you imagine a Marine getting totally dressed up in his full garb, 
being in the full armor of a Marine with an M16 and a knife and a gun and mace and all the stuff they carry, and then just going into Cub and buying a gallon of milk? Does that make any sense? Do you get outfitted for war to buy milk? You don't. You get outfitted for war to fight. And that's true for Christians as well. We don't need to put on the armor of God and take up the sword of the Spirit just in order to settle into a comfortable middle class lifestyle. I know of a church in Northern California whose moniker is, we're seeking to make the good life better. And I say, (coughs) puke, wrong. Jesus Christ did not come as an add-on to your yuppie lifestyle. He did not come to make us comfortable. He came to save us from our sins and to make us into warriors for His glory. And so we outfit ourselves with the armor of God and we take up the sword of the Spirit to fight and to fight with Christ. It would be absurd for Christians to think that our comfort is what is at stake here when in fact war is what is at stake. Beloved, to be a Christian is to be a warrior. And therefore, we must learn to put on the armor of God and rise up in Christ and fight with all of our might. And young people, I'm talking to you. You need to learn to fight this fight now while you're young and not wait until you're older. You will spare yourself so much difficulty if you will raise up now and be warriors in the army of God. The second text I want to point to you, and I want you to turn to these with me if you will. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And again, friends, none of this makes sense if Paul is speaking in metaphorical terms. But he is not speaking in metaphorical terms. I will grant you that when he talks about armor and a sword, he's using things in the world to make a metaphor to things in the Spirit. But what I'm trying to argue for is that the battle he's pointing toward in the Spirit is a real battle. We are actually in a war. This is not metaphorical. This is reality. And the way that I know Paul is talking about a reality is, in part at least, is the language he uses to describe his own life just one chapter later. So turn probably a page with me to 2 Corinthians 11.23-31. Here's how Paul described his experience as a Christian. Tell me if this fits with the Jesus came to make the good life better model. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, Paul says. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. For any of you who have seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ, you remember that scene where Jesus was being flogged? That's what Paul's talking about. That happened to him five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I think the implication is, who is weak in the churches? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Beloved, that is a description of a warrior. That is the language of a man who actually endured those things for the sake of the name. For Paul and for others, even living in our day and throughout the centuries, this spiritual battle is not always just spiritual. For some of them, it becomes a physical war. I was thinking about this the other day, how much I fear just sharing Christ with my neighbors because maybe they won't like me. Well, that wasn't Paul's situation. When he shared the gospel, they might have killed him or tried to do so. And this happened again and again and again and again. Why was he willing to do it? Because he was a warrior in the army of God. And so he outfitted himself for battle and he went to war. And so I say to you again, there is no way that Paul is being metaphorical when he more explicitly takes up the language of war to describe what it means to be a Christian. He means it. He means exactly what he says. Now that does not imply that all of us are called to go through the things that Paul went through. I personally am not going to go seek out a stoning. That doesn't sound good to me. And I don't think Paul was seeking it out either. I think Paul was simply obeying Christ and he was willing to endure whatever he had to endure. So what the calling is upon us though is to obey the Lord all the way to the end no matter what comes. Let them ostracize us. Let them put us down. Let them throw stones. Let them cast us into prison. Let them do whatever they do. We must obey Christ. We don't seek suffering We seek Christ, and if we must suffer, then we must, because that's how warriors think. I had two dads, a natural one, and my dad died when I was young, and I also had a stepdad. They both fought in World War II. They were willing to suffer physically for the sake of peace in the world and for the sake of good triumphing over evil. And what I'm saying is I think every Christian as well, we must be willing to endure whatever we must to obey Christ for the sake of His name. Beloved, to be a Christian is to be a warrior. And we must learn to put on the armor of God and take up the sword of His Spirit and fight with all of our might for the glory of His name. The third passage is 1 Thessalonians 5. So if you'll please turn there. 1 Thess 5, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them 
as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. What I think Paul is up to in this text is highlighting not just the reality, but the urgency of the war that we're in. And that urgency arises from and is sustained by the impending reality of the day of the Lord. Which is to say that day when Jesus Christ will come again physically and visibly. He said Himself that people would see it all across the earth. Just like when lightning strikes from one side to the other. Every eye will see Him. Every ear will hear Him. He will come visibly and physically. But this time, not to make redemption for sins. He's already done that once for all. That's over. This time, He will come to judge the world. This time He will come to bring all things to their appointed consummation. He will come to separate sheep from goats. He will come to judge every person by their deeds. And some He will send into eternal bliss with Him, and others He will send into eternal punishment where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what I think Paul means for meditation on this day to do for us is two things. Number one, I think he brings this up to strike a rightful fear into the heart of every human being, saved or not, so that we'll get right and wake up and be sober and pursue holiness and pursue Christ and prepare our lamps and be ready for the day when the bridegroom comes. You remember the parable of the virgins, don't you? Where there were ten who got themselves ready and ten who did not get themselves ready. And when the moment came for the wedding feast to begin, the ten who were not ready were shut out. There was no mercy left for them. It was over. They had been given all the time they needed. But instead of preparing themselves, they wasted their lives in laziness and self-centeredness and in indulgence. And friend, Paul is saying, that is what is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And for those who are not ready, there will be no escape. It will be too late. That's why there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever and ever. And I think Paul means for us to search our hearts and say, Lord, I I want to be ready and help me therefore to pursue holiness. The other thing I think Paul wants to happen here is for us to get a sense of the urgency of the war that we're in. Not just the reality, but the urgency of it. Friends, it's been so long since Christ first came to the earth that I fear many of us are tempted to think that He is not coming back. In the secret places of our hearts, I would bet that there are people here who think that, eh, it's probably not going to happen. Or at least it's not going to happen in my lifetime. But remember two things. The Lord always keeps His Word, doesn't He? 
Remember, he spoke a word to Abraham and said he was going to do certain things. And then decade after decade after decade went by in Abraham's life and Abraham died. And those things did not come to pass. It was thousands of years later before God fulfilled His word to Abraham. From our point of view, he was slow to keep his word, but he kept it. And the other thing we have to remember is that God doesn't work on our timetables, right? A thousand years to the Lord is as one day. So it's been about 2,000 years since Christ was here. It's nothing to Him. It's like a shadow. It's a vapor. It's a moment. It's gone. He's not slow in keeping His promises. He's wise. And He knows when is the appropriate time to pull the trigger. And when that time is right, He will pull that trigger. And He could come today. He could come in the middle of this sermon. And we ought to be ready. We ought to ponder this fact and let it give us a sense of rightful urgency because it is a reality. And as I said, if you are not ready, it will be too late and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for you forever and ever and ever and ever. Last week I had the privilege of spending some time with a guy named Vijay Meesala. His name isn't spelt exactly like that, but he goes by Vijay. He recently, uh, well, probably a couple years ago, actually received a vision from the Lord while he was in prayer one day in India, where he's from. Vijay says that in his vision, the Lord showed him a map of the world, and on that map there was a rectangular box. And he heard the words in his heart from the Lord. He heard the words, I am the Lord. I'm coming soon. Prepare yourself and prepare others. And Vijay was really gripped by this. This was a powerful moment in his life. Just a few days later, he went to a missions conference, and at that conference, one of the speakers showed a map of the world and a rectangular box around what we call the 1040 window, which is that part of the world that is most untouched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this map really touched Vijay because as he looked at it, it was the exact map he had seen in his vision. Same colors, same dimensions, same box, same everything. And in that moment, he knew what the Lord was calling him to do. And that was to put on his armor and to take up his sword and to be a mighty warrior for God inside the 1040 window. And so he went back home and he started a ministry called Reaching All Nations. And so far, Reaching All Nations has planted 57 churches and one orphanage and they don't plan to turn around and go back anytime soon. The reason I share this story with you is to say that that kind of thing is what happens when a Christian is gripped with the urgency of the coming of the Lord. And that's what Paul is trying to get to happen to us in 1 Thessalonians 5. He is not pointing to a metaphorical day. He is not referencing a metaphorical war. This is reality. And he's saying, be awake. Have eyes to see this. Live in light of the reality of this. Put on your armor and fight in Christ. That's what he's trying to get us to do. I don't know what the implications of that will be for each and every one of us. We're not all going to be called to drop our lives and go to India and start a church planting movement or to do that here. I don't know what the implications are for you. But what I know is true for every single one of you, even if you're not a believer, the Lord has you here today in part to grip you with a sense of the urgency of His presence and His coming. And He wants that day to be a joyful day for you. I pray to God when He appears that I will rejoice in Him because I'll be with Him forever and ever by His grace and mercy. And I weep for those who will not enjoy that day. 
You know, the Bible says in Revelation, I can't remember the exact spot, but it says that for some on that day, it will be such a terrible day that they will look to rocks and say, please fall on us, kill us, to hide us from the power of Him who is now pouring out His wrath. Have you ever been so scared that you wanted a big rock to fall on you and crush you? Well, that's what the day of the Lord will be like for those who are not prepared. And so how I pray, whatever the implications are for you, that a sense of urgency rightfully would grip your heart this day. To be a Christian is to be a warrior. And we frankly just need to wake up. We need to wake up and see this. Next passage. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you'll please turn there. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. Paul is writing to Timothy, in fact, who he was the pastor of the church in Ephesus after the book of Ephesians was written. And Paul is writing him now as an old man telling a younger man how to be a pastor. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now Paul says many things to Timothy in these few verses, but I think they can all be summed up in that one word in verse 12. In light of the reality of Christ, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. In other words, be a warrior. Be a warrior. Think like a warrior. Act like a warrior. Live like a warrior. Do not be passive. Do not be timid. Do not be lazy. Do not be self-indulgent, but rather put on the armor of God and be an aggressive Christian. Fight this fight of faith. Pursue the right things. Take hold of eternal life. Keep the commandments of the Lord unstained and free from reproach. Fight, Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Be a warrior. Now again I ask, why in the world would Paul use language like that to Timothy if he did not conceive that we are in an actual war that must be fought? The answer is, he wouldn't. And furthermore, for our part, why would the Lord go to the lengths that He did to preserve this language for us who would read it thousands of years later if we were not involved in an actual war for which He was trying to outfit us? Answer, He would not. To be a Christian is to be engaged in battle. A real battle. And we are warriors in the army of God and we must learn to rise up in Christ and fight with all of our might. One more text. 2 Timothy 4, 6-7. Just a couple of sentences here. These are among Paul's very last words to Timothy as he was ending the near, the, nearing the end of his life. I'm not sure exactly where he was, but I would suspect that he was in Rome at this time and literally getting ready to die. He knew he was going to die. Here's what he said. For I am already being poured out 
as a drink offering. Translated, I'm about to die and I know it. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So this powerful, this faithful man of God comes to the end of his life and as he look back, looks back over his life and as he searches for words to describe what his life has been about, the words that come to his mind is, I have fought the good fight. Why? Why do those particular words come to his mind? I would say because that's how a warrior thinks. That's how a warrior describes his life. That's how a warrior lifts himself up as a display for, for next generations to come along and be like. Remember Paul said in one place, follow me as I follow Christ? Well, here at the end of his life, he's saying the same thing essentially to Timothy. And what that means for him is, Timothy, put on your armor and fight. Be a warrior. Don't be a wimp. Don't be a passive Christian. Don't be self-indulgent. The time is short. Christ is coming. The stakes are high. Much joy is waiting for you. So put on your armor and fight. And again, none of this makes sense if Paul doesn't think we're actually engaged in a war. But if he thinks we are actually engaged in a war, his words make perfect sense. Beloved, to be a Christian is to be a warrior. End of story. End of my argument. I think that I've made the point. Now, some of you may be wondering why I took the time to go to such lengths to establish what might seem to you a simple point. And there are two reasons why I did this. First of all, I went to such lengths to establish this point because, believe it or not, there are actually Christians out there who deny that we're in a war and who deny that to be a Christian is to fight. The way that they argue this is that Christ already has done everything for us and so there's nothing left for us to do except to rest in Christ. We do not have to war. We do not have to fight. The war is over. The battle is done in Christ. And all we have to do is rest on Him. Well, there's parts of that that are true. But in the end, that way of thinking is false. And so I want to read to you a quote from Arthur Pink. In fact, I put this in your bulletins. If you want to turn there, I'm just going to read the first paragraph of what I put in your bulletins. Here's his response to those kinds of Christians. There are some who teach that those Christians who engage in spiritual fighting are living below their privileges. They insist that God is willing to do all of our fighting for us. Their pet slogan is, let go and let God. They say that the Christians should turn the battle over to Christ. And there is a half-truth in this, yet only a half-truth. And carried to extremes, it becomes error. The half-truth is that the child of God has no inherent strength of his own or her own. Says Christ to his disciples, without me ye can do nothing. Yet this does not mean that we are merely to be passive or that the ideal state in this life is simply to be galvanized automations. There is also a positive, an active, aggressive side to the Christian life which calls for the putting forth of our utmost endeavors, the use of every faculty, a personal and intelligent cooperation with Christ. And so I agree with Pink that it is right to say that Christ has done all and that only in Christ can we do anything and that apart from Christ we can do nothing. That is all true. But it is not right to conclude from this that we have no part to play, that we have no battle to fight 
And the reason I conclude that is because so many times across the New Testament, we are expressly commanded to engage in battle. We are told to fight. And of course He has done this for us, but still, in Him, in the Lord, and in the strength of His might, we must rise up and fight, Christian. We must. So many texts come to my mind for this, but I just want to take you to one more place. Philippians 2, 12-13, because this text so well captures the command that is upon us on the one side and the fact that it is God doing this in us on the other side. Philippians 2, 12-13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence as in my absence, but, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the part we have to play. You do this. You work it out. You fear. You tremble. You put on the armor. You fight. You do this. But then look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That means He works in us to make us want to fight, and He works in us to make us actually fight. He does it, and therefore He gets all the glory. I grant you that. I grant you that. But in Him, we must play our part and rise up and fight. And then at the end of the day, we look back and say, I fought the good fight, and it was God who did it, and so... All glory be to His name. That's why Paul said, if I have to boast, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. I'm going to boast in the things that display the fact that it was Christ doing this through me and not me doing this. So both of those things are true. We must fight. The second reason that I went to such great lengths to establish this point is because if the things I'm saying today are true and the things that I plan to say in the next three months are true, then the implications of them for our lives are far-reaching and they're very serious. If you are in Christ, truly, and you sit under this teaching for the next three months, I cannot imagine that you will come away with the conclusion that your life can stay just as it is. I cannot imagine that. Even if you are an experienced, disciplined, skilled, stalwart warrior... If you put yourself under the microscope of the Word of God, you are going to find things in your life that need to be changed. You're going to find adjustments that need to be made. You're going to find things that need to be done away with so that you can pursue Christ and have all that is in Him for you. And if you're on the opposite end of the scale, if you're a Christian indeed, but truth be told, you're a lazy, self-indulgent, bench-warming, unskilled, flabby warrior... If that's you, then this teaching is going to call for radical change in your life. It's going to call you to wake up and get off the bench and engage in the battle. And that is going to be really difficult for you. You're going to need a lot of help from the Lord. You're going to need a lot of help from your fellow believers. Most likely, the majority of us in this room are somewhere in the middle of that scale between the stalwart warrior and between the flabby, undisciplined, self-centered Warrior, And so that means that the news will not be all bad for us, but it's still going to call for difficult things out of our lives. It's going to call us to change. It's going to call us to take up our cross in new ways. It's going to cause us to have to die to ourselves and give up money and possessions and habits and other things that are near and dear to us that we love and are clinging to, but Christ is now calling us to let go of. It's going to call us to humble ourselves before the Lord and learn what it means to put His will above all things. It's going to cause us to become 
have to become more disciplined and more skilled and more practiced in the art of spiritual warfare. And none of this is going to be easy for us. It's going to take a tremendous amount of discipline and focus and humility and willingness to follow the Lord no matter where He leads. Now, here's the point. When a pastor is compelled to call the people of God to things like that, things that are difficult and challenging and piercing to the way that you're living your life, when he has to do that to be faithful to the Word, he better do it very carefully. He better do it with humility. He better do it without slipping into legalism and self-righteousness on the one hand or slipping into liberalism and the fear of men on the other hand. He, He better do it without going too far, going past the Word of God, and he better do it without not going far enough. In other words, shrinking back in fear and not saying all that the Word says. He better stay close to Christ by clinging close to His Word. And so the reason I wanted to go to such lengths to establish this fact today that we are in a war, and this is no metaphor, and every one of you is a warrior if you're in Christ. This is no metaphor. I wanted to go to such lengths because that's going to call for change from you. If you want to rise up and be a strong man of God or a strong woman of God or a strong child of God, you're going to have to change. You're going to have to follow Him into battle. And I don't take that lightly. I will be the first to admit that I have a lot of growing to do in this area. I have a lot of shifting of priorities to do in my personal life and in my ministry life. You have been listening to this sermon for 40 minutes or so. I've been listening to this sermon all week long and even weeks before that because I've been thinking about this stuff for over a month preparing myself to preach through this section of Ephesians. And the Lord has already laid His hand upon me. The Lord has already said, See that? That's got to change. See that? That's got to change. And now I have two choices. One is I can rebel against my master and I can do whatever the heck it is that I want to do and just stay the same. Or I can humble myself before Him, I can trust Him, and I can follow Him wherever He leads me, that I might know His joy, that I might become more like Him, that I might be outfitted for war. And before Christ and before my wife, I have already resolved for the second option to be true of me. Even if the Lord deeply challenges me, I want to follow Him into the pain that I might also follow Him into the joy He has for me. And over the next three months, brothers and sisters, I want to call you to follow me in that. I want to ask you to follow me into chosen pain, as it were, chosen change, so that we can become more like Jesus and discover His joy. Because, beloved, every word that's hard from the Lord to us is also hopeful to us. And here's why. Whenever we follow the commands of Jesus, we discover the path to true joy. Now, the only people that that makes sense to is those of you who've actually practiced this. When you follow Christ onto the path of death to yourself, you find the path to life in Him. Everything in you says, no, this is wrong. Your flesh is objecting, but it's true. Death to self is the path to life in Christ. And pain in Christ is the path to joy in Christ. Whenever we choose the narrow way, we find the broadest blessings in Christ. And so again, I'm calling you to follow me into the pain that we might discover joy in Christ. And truly, not just, not just superficially or not just in name only, but that truly we would become mighty warriors, men, women, and children for the glory of God.
Now very quickly, I just want to lay out the path for the next several months and tell you what I think it's going to take to become skilled warriors. Number one, we're going to have to get in view who our supreme commander is. We've got to understand the glory of his being. We have to know who we're fighting for and how strong he is and who is on our side and what our chances of victory are. We've got to get all that in view. That's the dominant thing we have to get in view. And so next week I'm going to take a whole sermon just to talk about the words. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We're going to get our commander in view here and just see how likely it is that we will win if we stay in Him. Hint, very likely. Second thing we have to do to become skilled warriors is to get our enemy in view. We have to know who we're fighting against and how strong he is and who's on his side and what his tactics are and how he does what he does. No one can win a battle or a war successfully without accurately knowing their enemy. And I bet you Dave Fergus is saying hallelujah right now. Anyone in the military knows that that's true. And so we're going to take a full sermon, just one, and talk about our enemy. Number three, we have to, in order to become a skilled warrior, outfit ourselves for war. We have to become intimately familiar with every piece of armor that the Lord has given us. And we have to understand how to wear it properly. We must become intimately familiar with the weapons He's given us as well and understand how to wield them properly. No soldier will survive a battle who doesn't wear the armor right and who doesn't wield their weapons well. And so we're going to spend six weeks talking about that plus the next point here. The fourth thing we have to do to become skilled for war is to train and train and train and train and train until we're intimately familiar with the tactics of war. This is why I plan to spend six weeks on each part of the armor. And part of what I want to do is show you how each part of the armor is designed for war. I bet you that many of you have thought about things like salvation and righteousness and truth. But I wonder if you've ever considered how those things play into your hand in the heat of battle. Have you ever thought about how truth becomes a weapon of war when you're being tempted or when you're facing someone who's not a believer or where the, when the Lord is calling you to do something that's beyond you? These things are meant to outfit you for war. And I want to take six weeks to talk about how that is so. Finally, the fifth thing that we have to do to become skilled for war is actually enter into the battle and learn to fight with all of our might. Please hear this carefully. You can learn the principles of war in a classroom, but you can only become a warrior on the battlefield, right? You can learn the principles in a classroom, but you can only become a warrior on the battlefield. And so at some point, each and every one of us is going to have to go out and get into that battle. Some of us will engage in serious, perhaps even very intense and fierce battles. And that day will come. Now, the thing about this boot camp is, and this last point is, that I doubt very much that the enemy of our souls is going to take the next 12 weeks off and let us train for a while. I doubt that. I'll just bet in the next 12 weeks, maybe in the next 12 minutes or 12 hours, you're going to face temptation from Him. Some of you are going to enter into fierce battles in the next three months. I just know it. I've sensed it in the Lord. So here's the deal. We have to train and fight at the same time. We're like an army who is being attacked and we need to train, but they're attacking us now and we need to fight now. We need to train now and we need to fight now. And so my final word to you for this morning is... 
Soldier of Christ, men, women, and children, seek your supreme commander every day. It's my first piece of advice to you. Just be in His face. Seek His presence. Learn to put on the armor that He's given you. Learn to take up the sword that He's given you. He will teach you to fight. He doesn't need 12 weeks to train you. He could train you in 12 seconds. He's a great trainer. He's a great father. He's a great supreme commander. So go to Him. And if before this training session is done in May or June or whenever we're done, if you enter into fierce battle, I'm telling you, hear me. Look to Him. Look to Him. Look to Him. He will help you. He will outfit you. He will cause you to win for the glory of His name. Let's pray. Well, Father, in Jesus' name, I just can't even express in words the longing in my heart that there is that You would cause each and every one of us in this room and who's hearing this message online and the coming messages to rise up and be true men, women, and children of God, outfit for war, skilled in war, experienced in spiritual war. Please, Lord, equip us that we might fight the good fight. Equip us that we might play our part in tearing down strongholds, as Paul said. Equip us that we might have a part of the army of the kingdom of God and therefore celebrate greatly and joyfully in the victory with you at the end of all things. I give myself to you again, Father, and right now publicly before you, before the angels, before your people, before my wife, before everyone, I offer myself up to you and I invite you to speak change into my life, Lord. And I only pray that you'd give me the power to follow in the way that you would have me go. And then I pray, Lord, that everyone in this church would be willing to pray the same prayer. That we would be willing to place ourselves before You, face plant, as it were, and just be vulnerable before You and allow You to speak into our lives. And then we ask for power. We ask for grace. We ask for mercy that we may actually walk in the things that You give us to do. Oh, please, Jesus Christ, wake us up and outfit us that we might not fall asleep in this war and fail to be prepared for the day when You come back. In your great and gracious name, we pray all these things. Amen.